Section 8 of the Letters of Madame de Savigny to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 23. Paris, Wednesday, January the 13th, 1672. For heaven's sake, my dear child, what do you mean? What pleasure can you take in thus abusing your person and understanding? vilifying your conduct and saying that one must have great good nature to think of you sometimes i am certain you cannot believe all you say yet it hurts me to hear it you really make me angry with you and though perhaps i ought not to answer seriously things that are only said in jest yet i cannot help scolding you before i go any further you are excellent again when you say you are afraid of wits. Alas, if you knew how insignificant they are when you are by, and how encumbered they are with their own dear persons, you would not value them at all. Do you remember how you used to be deceived in them sometimes? Do not let distance magnify objects too much, but it is one of its common effects. We sup every evening at Madame Scarron's. She has a most engaging wit and an understanding surprisingly just and clear. It is a pleasure to hear her sometimes reason upon the horrid confusion and distractions of a country with which she is very well acquainted. The vexations that Edicourt undergoes in a place that appears so dazzling and glorious the continual rage of Lausanne, the gloomy chagrin and cares of the court ladies, from which the most envied are not always exempt, are things which she describes in the most agreeable and entertaining manner. Such conversations as these lead us insensibly from one moral reflection to another, sometimes of a religious, sometimes of a political kind. You are frequently one of our subjects. She admires your wit and manners. And whenever you return hither, you are sure of being highly in favour. But let me give you an instance of the King's goodness and generosity to show you what a pleasure it is to serve so amiable a master. He sent for Marshal Berfond into his closet the other day and thus accosted him. Monsieur le Maréchal, I insist upon knowing your reasons for quitting my service. Is it through a principle of devotion? Is it from an inclination to retire? Or is it on account of your debts? If it be the latter, I myself will take charge of them and inform myself of the state of your affairs. The Marshal was sensibly affected with this goodness. Sire, said he, it is my debts. I am overwhelmed with them and cannot bear to see some of my friends, who assisted me with their fortunes, likely to suffer on my account, without having it in my power to satisfy them. Well then, said the king, they shall have security for what is owing to them. I now give you a hundred thousand francs on your house at Versailles, and a grant of four hundred thousand more, 
as a security in case of your death. The hundred thousand francs will enable you to pay off the arrears. And so now you remain in my service. That heart must be insensible indeed that could refuse the most implicit obedience to such a master who enters with so much goodness and condescension into the interest of his servants. Accordingly, the marshal made no further resistance. He is now reinstated in his place and loaded with favours. This is all strictly true. Not a night passes at Saint-Germain without balls, plays or masquerades. The king shows an assiduity to divert this, madame, that he never did for the other. Racine has brought out a new piece called Bajasse, which they say carries everything before it. Indeed, it does not go in Imperando as the others did. Monsieur de Trèves says that it as much exceeds the best piece of Corneille's as Corneille's does one of Voyer's. This now is what you may call praising by the lump. There is nothing like telling truth. However, our eyes and ears will inform us more fully, for footnote du bruit de Bajasse, more arme importune, a line in des back to main text, mon arme importune obliges me to go immediately to the play. We shall see what it is. I have been at Vivry. Ah, my dear child, how well did I keep my word with you, and how many tender thoughts of you filled my breast. It was delightful weather, though very cold, but the sun shone finely, and every tree was hung with pearls and crystals that formed a pleasing diversity of colours. I walked a great deal. The next day I dined at Pompon. It would not be an easy matter to recount all that passed during a stay of five hours. However, I was not at all tired with my visit. Monsieur de Pompon will be here in three or four days. I should be very much vexed if I was obliged to apply to him about your Provence affairs. I am persuaded he will not hear me. You see, I give myself airs of knowledge. But really, nothing comes up to Monsieur Dusses. I never saw a man of better understanding, nor one more capable of giving sound advice. I wait to see him that I may inform you of what he has done at Saint-Germain. You desire me to write you long letters. I think you have now sufficient reason to be contented. I am sometimes frightened at the length of them myself, and were it not for your agreeable flattery, I should never think of venturing them out of my hands. Madame de Brissac is excellently provided for the winter in Monsieur de Longueville and the Count de Guiche, but nothing is meant but what is fair and honourable, only she takes a pleasure in being adored. La Marin is never seen now, either at Madame de Lafayette's or at Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld's. 
we cannot find out what she is doing. We are apt to judge a little rashly now and then. She took it into her head this summer that she should be ravished, as if she wished it. But I am of the opinion that she's in no great danger. Good heavens, what a mad creature she is. And how long have I looked on her in the same light as you do now? But now, let me tell you, my dear, it is not my fault that I do not see Madame de la Valavoie. Footnote, a lady of quality in Provence, who was just then come to Paris. Back to main text. I am sure there is no occasion to bid me go and see her. It is enough that she has seen you for me to run after her. But then she is running after somebody else. For I might forever desire her to wait at home for me. I cannot get her to do me that favour. Your jest applies admirably to Monsieur Le Grand, and a very good one it is. Poor Chatillon is every day teasing us with the most wretched ones imaginable. Letter 24, Paris, Wednesday, June the 20th, 1672. I send you Monsieur de Rochefoucault's maxims, revised and corrected with additions. It is a present to you from himself. Some of them I can make shift to guess the meaning of, but there are others that, to my shame be it spoken, I cannot understand at all. God knows how it will be with you. There is a dispute between the Archbishop of Paris and the Archbishop of Rheims about a point of ceremony. Paris will have Rheims ask leave of him as his superior to officiate, which Rams will not consent to. It is said that these two right reverends will never agree till they are thirty or forty leagues asunder. If that is the case, they are both of them likely to continue as they are. The ceremony it relates to is the canonization of one Borgia, a Jesuit. The whole opera band is to exert itself on the occasion the streets will be illuminated even to the Rue Saint-Antoine. The people are all mad about it. Olmerenville, however, has died without having seen it. Do not deceive yourself, my child, by entertaining too good an opinion of my letters. The other day, an impertinent fellow, seeing the monstrous length of a letter I was writing to you, asked me very seriously, if I thought anybody could possibly read it all. I trembled at the thought of it, but without any intention of amendment, for the correspondence I have with you is my existence, the sole pleasure of my life, and every other consideration is but mean when put in competition with it. I am uneasy about your brother, poor fellow. The weather is very cold. He lies in camp and is still on the march to Cologne. The Lord knows how long. I was in hopes of seeing him this winter, and to see where he is now. After all, I find little Mademoiselle Adema must be the comfort of my old age. I wish you could see how fond she is of me, how she cries after me and hangs about me. 
She is not a beauty, but she is very pleasing, has a delightful voice, and a skin as clear and white. In short, I dote on her. You, it seems, dote on your boy. I'm very glad of it. We cannot have too many things to amuse us, real or imaginary. It does not signify. Tomorrow there is to be a ball at Madame's. I saw a heap of jewels tossing about at Mademoiselle's, which put me in mind of past troubles. And yet would to heaven we were at the same work again. For how can I be unhappy while you are with me? Alas, my whole life is one continued scene of sorrow and disappointment. Dear Monsieur Nicole, have pity on me, and teach me to bear with patience the dispensations of providence. Farewell, my dearest child. I dare not say I adore you, but I cannot conceive any degree of love superior to mine. The kind and pleasing assurances you give me of yours at once lighten and increase my sorrows. Letter 25, Paris, Wednesday, March the 16th, 1672. You talk to me of my departure. Alas, my dear, I languish in the pleasing hope of it. Nothing now stops me but my poor aunt. Footnote. Henrietta de Coulanges, Marchioness de la Trousse, back to main text, who was dying with violent pain and dropsy. It breaks my heart to see her sufferings and to hear the tender and affecting manner in which she talks to me. Her courage, patience and resignation are altogether admirable. Monsieur Dacqueville and I observe her distemper from day to day. He sees my inmost heart and knows what grief it is to me not to be at liberty at present. I am entirely guided by him, and we shall see between this and Easter whether her disorder increases as much as it has done since I came hither. If it does, she will die in our arms. But if she receives any relief and is likely to languish for any length of time, I shall then set out as soon as Monsieur de Collange comes back. Our poor Abbe is as vexed at this as myself, but we shall be able to judge how it will turn out by next month. I can think of nothing else. You cannot wish to see me as much as I do to embrace you. So put some bounds to your ambition. And do not hope ever to equal me in that respect. My son tells me they lead a wretched life in Germany and are working all in the dark. He was greatly concerned at the death of the poor Chevalier. You ask me if I am as fond of life as ever, and I must own to you that I experience mortifications, and severe ones too, but I am still unhappy at the thoughts of death. 
I consider it so great a misfortune to see the termination of all my pursuits that I should desire nothing better, if it were practicable, than to begin life again. I find myself engaged in a scene of confusion and trouble. I was embarked in life without my own consent, and know I must leave it again. That distracts me. For how shall I leave it? In what manner? By what door? At what time? In what disposition? Am I to suffer a thousand pains and torments that will make me die in a state of despair? Shall I lose my senses? Am I to die by some sudden accident? How shall I stand with God? What shall I have to offer to him? Will fear and necessity make my peace with him? Shall I have no other sentiment but that of fear? What have I to hope? Am I worthy of heaven? Or have I deserved the torments of hell? Dreadful alternative. Alarming uncertainty. Can there be greater madness than to place our eternal salvation in uncertainty? Yet what is more natural, or can be more easily accounted for, than the foolish manner in which I have spent my life? I am frequently buried in thoughts of this nature, and then death appears so dreadful to me that I hate life more for leading me to it than I do for all the thorns that are strewed in its way. You will ask me then if I would wish to live forever. Far from it. But if I had been consulted, I would very gladly have died in my nurse's arms. It would have spared me many vexations and would have ensured heaven to me at a very easy rate. But let us talk of something else. I am quite provoked that you have received Bajasset from any hand but mine. That fellow, Barbin, footnote, a famous bookseller of that name, back to main text, has served me this trick out of spite, because I do not write Princesses of Cleve and Montpensier. Footnote, two romances written by Madame de Lafayette, by which Barbin got a great deal of money, back to main text. You form a very just and true judgment of Bajasset, and you will find that I am of your opinion. I wish I could send you Chambonnet to enliven it a little. The character of Bajasset wants life, and the manners of the Turks are ill-preserved. Their marriages have less ceremony. The plot is badly managed, and we are at a loss to account for so much slaughter. The piece has doubtless its beauties, but there's nothing superlative, nothing perfect. None of those fine strokes that, like Corneille's, make one tremble. Let us be cautious how we compare Racine with him. The difference between them is great. The pieces of the latter are in many places cold and feeble. Nor will he ever be able to surpass his Alexander and Andromache. Many persons consider Bazaget as inferior to both these, and it is my opinion also, 
if I may be allowed to give it. Racine's plays are written for Chambillet and not for posterity. Footnote. The event has proved by Mithridates, Phaedre and Atalia that Madame de Sévigné's judgment partook of the prejudice of the times in which she wrote. Back to main text. Racine's plays are written for Chambillet and not for posterity. Whenever he grows old and ceases to be in love, it will be seen whether I am mistaken or not. Long lived then our old friend Corneille. Let us forgive the bad lines we occasionally meet with for the sake of those divine sallies that so often transport us, those masterly strokes that bid defiance to imitation. Despréaux has said as much before me, and it is in general the opinion of everyone of good taste. Let us, therefore, maintain it. I send you a witticism of Madame de Cornuel's, which has highly diverted the crowd. Young Monsieur Trombonneau has quitted the long robe and taken to the jacket and trousers. In short, he is resolved to go to sea. I do not know in what way the land has offended him. However, somebody told Madame de Cornuel that he was going to sea. Lord bless the man! said she. Has he been bitten by a mad dog? As this was said off-hand, it raised a great laugh. End of section 8